Welcome to the Soto Health and Wellness Podcast. We are the Soto Brothers. I am Samuel Soto, doctor of physical therapy. And I am Joseph Soto, a physician. Together, we are board-certified medical providers who specialize in internal medicine and physical therapy. Our mission is to promote longevity, health span, and wellness in order to prevent illness and injury so we can optimize the human experience. Any information on diseases and treatments available at this channel is intended for general guidance only and must never be considered a substitute for advice provided by a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare professional with questions you may have regarding your medical condition. The year is 5.3 million years ago. You are a hominin living in the Pliocene Epoch. You are walking in a forest and stumble across a fungi growing on the soil surface. After trial and error by your brothers, sisters, and friends, you now know which fungi are safe to eat and which will kill you. You proceed to eat this fungi with psilocybin in it, and now your tribe begins to flourish. Information is now shared. Collective rituals and synchronicity of laughter, music, and dance are employed. You are more cognitively flexible and creative and a better problem solver. You are more empathetic and display altruistic behavior for your tribe. Your ego is dissolved and your species thrives. Ladies and gentlemen, we evolved alongside psychedelics. The interpersonal and pro-social effects of psilocybin, which is a component of psychedelics, may have mediated the expansion of social bonding mechanisms such as laughter, music, storytelling, and religion, imposing a systemic bias on the selective environment that favored selection for pro-sociality in our lineage. The Renaissance was a fervent period of European cultural, artistic, political, and economic rebirth following the Middle Ages. Generally described as taking place around the 14th century, around to the maybe the 17th century, the Renaissance promoted the rediscovery of classical philosophy, literature, and art. But now the year is 2022, and along comes this new Renaissance, the psychedelic Renaissance. Now imagine you are someone with intractable depression or resistant depression, depression that is resistant to medications, resistant to talk therapy, resistant to everything. You were prescribed SSRIs like Prozac, and you have not benefited from them. In fact, you now have some of the side effects like headaches, dry mouth, and heartburn. You have suicidal thoughts, intrusive thoughts that have left you crippled, disabled, unable to work, leave the house, and see your friends and loved ones. You don't laugh anymore, eat. You don't do those things that make you human. But what if we told you that this new renaissance could open your mind to new possibilities? The same possibilities our hominin ancestors had that made their tribes thrive. What if psychedelics, which have been hiding for 60 years, could rewire your brain in a safe and effective manner and allow your brain to form new connections to help, to help you with your depression, PTSD, cigarette addiction, and more? This is the power of psychedelics. And this new fervent period of cutting-edge science may be the missing link to your healing journey. So Joe, let's begin with depression. Yeah, so thank you, Sam. Uh, I think today our goal is really threefold. 
So what we really want to accomplish today is we really want to shed light into what is the current research in terms of major depression. We're going to talk about anxiety. We want to really make sure that people who are listening to us, both audio and, and video, are aware of, of, of all the uh, options that we have available right now, because there's actually a lot. Mm-hmm. But And I also want to make sure that people understand that there's many things you can do that don't involve medications. You know, we're going to talk about behavioral interventions, uh, things such as transcranial magnetic stimulation, supplements. So we're going to cover a lot here, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So let me start by kind of giving an overview of, of depression. And for the purposes of this talk, when I mention depression, I'm referring to major depression, which is also known as unipolar depression, which is different from bipolar depression, which is com- as a completely different entity. And we will obviously be doing further episodes on bipolar, OCD, addiction. But for today, when we, when we, when we refer to depression, we're actually referring to major depression. So let me give you some statistics. So about 10% of the U.S. population is affected by major depression and is among the leading causes of the disability due to missed work, school, and productivity. 300 million people around the world are also affected. So this is not just in the U.S. This is also global, worldwide. Sadly, every 11.5 minutes, someone takes their life in the U.S. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for 15 to 24-year-old Americans. The highest suicide rates per 100,000 people in the U.S. are among white males, followed by Native American Alaska natives and black males. Furthermore, if that wasn't grim enough, the relative risk of all-cause mortality for those with depression is 1.7 times greater than the risk for the general public. And depression is also clearly linked with addictive behaviors and is likely responsible for the opioid epidemic, indirectly to obesity, diabetes, and alcoholism. So we have a lot to unpack there. I just wanted to give you an overview of how big of a problem this is in terms of depression. And why I believe everybody should, should, should care about this, even if you're not affected. You know, if there's, let's say there's a room of 10 people, that means one out of 10 has depression from the, from the statistics I just told you, which is 10%. But also and, one of those people, there may be more that don't come forward and, and talk about their depression. So it's probably even more, right? Because it's stigmatized. Great, great point, Sam. That, that is a very, very important point. When I, when I gave you those statistics, this is diagnosed. This is diagnosed by a healthcare professional, a therapist, somebody who is, is uh, very experienced with that. But I believe there's probably many more people who are depressed, yeah. who don't seek care, who hide it, who are sick because there's so much stigma in our society still with depression, which we'll get into as well. So, you know, long story short, this is a huge problem that is affecting millions upon millions of people worldwide. And, and I really, truly hope that this episode will help someone listening out there, whoever it is from every corner of the world, whoever's listening, uh, you're not alone and we're here, we're here to help you. So let's, let's start talking about the biology of depression and other proposed mechanisms. So I, depression is actually under an umbrella of diseases that are, that are called diseases of despair, 
which is actually a term that that is 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 becoming more and more common. You know, other diseases of despair include opioid addiction, obesity, diabetes. These are diseases that we're seeing in developed countries, such as the U.S., Canada, certain places in in, in Europe. Now, there are different proposed mechanisms for depression. There's obviously nature or nurture. And what that means is, is depression really coming from our genetics? Is it purely genetic or is it also nurture or both? Is it our childhood? Is it society? Is it social media? Is it our diet? Or is it our childhood? Now, these are the things that I think about because in my practice, when I, when I, and I've seen many patients with depression, it, I feel like every patient that I see has a slightly different cause of depression. And, you know, depression is one of those diseases where it doesn't present the same in everyone. You know, different people present differently. And I'll, I'll be talking a lot more about that shortly. But just know that depression is not a uniform, in this, it's not a uniform disease. It doesn't present exactly the same in everyone. And I believe that depression arises from, from different causes in different people. And it's not as straightforward as just thinking about dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. I think that's way too oversimplified. But basically, the current thinking of how these diseases arise is that essentially th these are chemical imbalances in the brain. So depression is because of a chemical imbalance. There's too little serotonin or there's a disruption in dopamine or norepinephrine. These are what we call neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters are just a fancy term to describe the, the molecules in the brain that allow us to think, to, to, to execute. To, to have drive, to have motivation. So that's one theory. The other theory is that there's some sort of alteration in neural circuits. So it turns out that in our brains, there are pathways and different parts of the brain communicate with each other and they're called circuits, neural circuits. So some believe there's an alteration of those circuits. Mm -hmm. Others believe that it could be hormonal issues, cortisol being high, low thyroid hormone, genetic predispositions, recurrent bouts of stress. You know, studies have shown that one, two, three, and four bouts of stress has been shown to, to lead to depression. Now, I want to make a very important point here because I think as a medical society and as a medical community, we focused way too much on serotonin. And although serotonin is very important, I believe dopamine is actually very, very, very overlooked. And it's actually dopamine that I believe is driving most of the depression in our society. So dopamine is actually a neurotransmitter integral to drive and motivation. So it's really what, what makes us get out of bed. It makes us train for something. It makes us want to accomplish something. And dopamine is actually very finely balanced in the brain. And there's a, huge, there's a balance between pain and reward. And depression usually occurs when the pain side is too high or and some people believe that we deplete our dopamine stores, like the pathways where dopamine acts, they, they burn out essentially. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So with that in mind, I, I would like to give what I propose is causing so much depression in our society. And it, it's, 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 it's very interesting to think that where, where are we seeing the most depression? It's actually in developed countries. The, the U.S. has one of the highest rates of depression. 
other other you know civilized and and um, you know developed countries are the same. Although we are seeing depression, obviously all parts of the world, but it's it's mainly in wealthy countries. Why is that? We 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 make more and more money every year. We have less and less real problems, and by real problems, I mean access to food, shelter, and things like that. So why are we getting more depressed? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Why are children becoming more and more depressed? Specifically, the 15 to 24-year-old statistic I just told you about. That's the age group of the most suicide. How can that be? That's the, that's the part of life when, when people are supposed to be the happiest, like their outlook of life is supposed to be the best, they're supposed to be working in school, forming relationships. So why are so many people in that age group killing themselves? Well, I'm going to propose a couple of things. And it's again, it's not as simple as dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. Because I believe that, yes, serotonin, there may be an imbalance of serotonin and dopamine, but that doesn't really explain, that doesn't tell us why it's happening. Okay, It, it just explains something, but I, we need to go deeper than that. Why is it happening? Well, I believe we live in a society that is lacking sense of purpose and meaning. And I feel like a lot of people don't have that these days. You know, that's very important. There's actually three domains to happiness. One is um, sense of purpose. And many people in, in our society, they don't have purpose, you know. Unfortunately, they're working in jobs that they don't like. They're in relationships that they don't want to be in. They're doing things that they don't want to do, and they lack purpose. And that's actually a huge, huge driver of, of depression, is not having a purpose. And then the other one is meaning, not, not belonging to anything. You know, we, have, we, are, we are in a society where more and more people are, are alone. Um, we have less sense of community. We have less social networks. We're disconnected from nature. You know, we're indoors all day. We're not getting enough sunlight. Americans are lonelier and lonelier, and we're we're most currently we've we're, we're the loneliest we've ever been. And like I said, depression tends to be more common in wealthy nations among wealthier groups. And depending on who you ask, you know, some people will say, "Yeah, you know, it's a chemical imbalance," and and yeah, there could be some issues with with uh, drive, with uh, with uh, purpose, and all these things, but. It's it's very mixed. Like we're we're not really getting a straight answer with that. I believe that's what what it is. Um, obviously, there are people who are who are genetically predisposed predisposed to depression. No question about that. It, they run in families. There's clusters of family members who are depressed. Yes, there is a genetic component. But remember, it's it's the analogy is is it's it's not just a gun. You have to load the gun with a bullet. That's the that's the analysis that I give with. The analogy with genetics and and your environment are also known as epigenetics. So your yeah. genetics slow the gun, and the environment pulls the trigger. Correct? Yeah, basically, it's it's not enough just to say that it's genetics. There has to be something else going on, and yeah. it's most likely our environment. And like I said, I believe it's lack of sense of purpose, meaning. Right. Um, we're also living in in what um, someone coined. I forget who it was. It's called a comfort crisis where things are too easy. And what I mean by that is, when you think about evolutionarily, 
when you think about our hunter-gatherer ancestors, or the human beings who lived in the savannas of Africa, in the caves of Europe, they had to hunt every single day. They had to kill their animals. They had to find food. They, they would often starve and die from infections. Life was very difficult at that time period. And we live in the modern society where it's, it's, you just open your fridge and there's food, there's light, there's shelter. And our, our genetics and our brains, they, don't, they still think that we're in that time period. Like not enough time has passed for us to know, hey, you, you know, it, it's, 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 we're comfortable. Like you need to do this, you need to do that. Human beings, we're wired to, to struggle. We're wired to survive, okay? We, we, our ancestors, they had to go through so many things to survive. And I think that's in us. Like human beings, we have a, we have a desire, a deep desire, a primal desire to, to struggle, to, to build things. Like this is, this is why we build skyscrapers and we build bridges and we went to the moon because we have this innate desire to, to succeed. And I think a lot of people don't have that because it, it's just too easy, unfortunately. And I'm not saying that, you know, bills are not enough stressful or a stressful boss, but when you compare that to what, what human beings were dealing with, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, it's nothing in comparison to what we're dealing with now. And that's a proposed mechanism is that we are truly in a comfort crisis. Things are just too easy. And not just, not just, I'm not just talking about thousands of years ago. This is a generational thing. You know, when we think about two generations before us, you know, we were in, in wars, we were in World War II, we were in, you know, Vietnam, you know, it's, life was tough. You know, I, I know that we still have a ways to go, obviously, but things for the most part are pretty good. And that could very well be causing this crisis of mental health. And I'm sure Sam will talk a lot more about that um, as we as we go on. You know, I just want to make highlight a couple more points um, before I, before he does that. You know, there's something called the hedonic treadmill, which is which is a, a psychological term that I want to make sure that we talk about. You know, especially in the U.S., we we live in a society where everyone wants to keep up with the Joneses, right? Everyone wants that next car, that next gadget, that next phone, the next vacation. Everyone wants that promotion. Everyone wants that new, that new job, right? We're, we're in constant debt. We're basically a consumeristic society. And unfortunately, that could be also driving mental health, especially depression. Because when you're constantly comparing yourself to other people in your, in your group, in your society, in your neighborhood, it's just human emotion to, to feel bad about yourself. And um, like I said, the happiness domain is really all about enjoyment satisfaction and purpose. I, I spoke about a lot about purpose, satisfaction. A lot of us don't get any satisfaction from what we do. Again, because we're, we're doing things that we don't want to do. We're, we're doing things that society is telling us to do. And we're not finding enjoyment in anything. So, you know, th th that's just a very, very broad, uh, kind of a, you know, 3,000 foot overview of, the, of depression. Sam, did you want to say something before I continue? Yeah, I think you made some really good points. I want to touch upon a few. Um, the first is the that happiness domain that you mentioned. Um, so I, when I went to I went to Amsterdam last April, and Amsterdam is known to be one of the happiest countries of the world. 
you know, alongside various Scandinavian countries, um, countries like Finland, Norway, Denmark. And I went to a museum in Amsterdam. I may have mentioned this in the first podcast, but I went to a museum called the Happiness Project. And in this museum, there were various models and various, um, various information about what makes people happy. And they did a huge survey on people and they found out one of the predictors of happiness is actually how much you trust your government. Hmm. So I'm not surprised that major depression is, is higher in developed countries and countries that have a lot of money and economics. I'm not surprised that that's the case. Um, so I just thought that was interesting, you know, how, how much you actually trust your government, how much you think that your government has the people's best interests and really cares for their people. I think that's very interesting. And the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, meaning as being another domain of happiness, right? So if you guys have read the book by Viktor Frankl, A Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl was somebody who survived the Holocaust and went through, literally went through hell. Um, he lost many family members in the Holocaust. He, you know, was starved. He had to work. He had to survive. He needed to display a ton of psychological resilience and physical resilience. And he made it through and journaled his way to, to a meaning. And he basically talks about in his book, how meaning is like a man's search for meaning is the most important thing that they can do. If you don't have a meaning in life or a purpose in life, it's going to be very, very easy, an easy road to be depressed because you're not going to have any direction. So, and, and, and going back to the, to the dopamine uh, point there, Joseph, yeah, I think dopamine is very important. Um, the, the whole serotonin imbalance, the neurotransmitter imbalance in the brain, I think that theory has been almost debunked at this point because, you know, that's a very, 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 very simple way of looking at things. And human beings are very complex mentally. We have a very complex mind and body, and I think it goes deeper. I think it goes into those neural circuits that you spoke about, and which we're going to talk about later on, the default mode network, which is very, very important circuitry in our brain that's involved with depression. And it's going to involve with psychedelics, which we're going to get into shortly, guys. Don't worry. So and the last thing I wanted to say was, yeah, I think the comfort crisis is definitely causing people to get that quick dopamine rush, right? You, you're hungry. What do you do? You open a fridge and you get a piece of food, right? You get a sandwich from, from last night. You get takeout from last night. Oh, you're hungry? Uber Eats, right? Oh, it's in your door in 10 minutes. Okay, cool. You don't have to work for, for much anymore. There are many things in life nowadays where you, it just it's so easy for you to get. And when it's so easy for you to get, there's no, there's no reward. There's no natural, healthy dopamine reward system being implemented in your brain. Right. And mm -hmm. so I think, I think when it comes to genetic depression, I do believe that neurotransmitter imbalance and gene expression, which causes specific personality traits of people, I think that's a valid point. But when it comes to major depression, that's, that doesn't really have a, a cause, like, you know, a major death in the family, a major loss, a major traumatic experience, you know, traumas, uh, PTSD. When it's just kind of like, okay, you have a low mood and you've been diagnosed with major depression, guys, listen, it, it may be because of your habits, maybe because you're not exercising, maybe because you're not eating right, maybe because you're not having social uh, interactions and you don't have a meaning in life. So I just got, want you guys to think about that in a different way um, as to all the options which may be causing your major depression. So yeah, let's, let's move forward here, Joseph.
Yeah, so I think those are all great points. And we'll, we'll definitely be talking more about those things. I just wanted to highlight a couple more things. So like I said, the, the happiness domain is actually very, very important to realize this. Um, you know, people who focus more on themselves, they tend to be less happy. Whereas those who zoom out and focus on others tend to be happy, happier. And again, this probably has to do with our evolution. Like when we were evolving in the, in the, in the Savannah, we, we evolved as, as groups, we evolved with other people. So human beings are not meant to be by themselves. They're not meant to be, you know, isolated. And again, we live in a society where most people are isolated, right? Either at work, uh, they kind of hang out in their cubicle and they just, just there for a paycheck. They go home isolated again, you know, um, it's just a lot of that, the loneliness epidemic and, 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 you know, human beings, they're really, they're really meant to be helping others and getting out of yourself, getting out of the ego, what we call the ego, the self. When you focus on yourself, then you, you start looking inward, right? And that's actually what, the opposite of what you want to be doing. You know, a lot of the ancient Buddhists spoke about this and, and ancient traditions from India. You know, you, you really want to look outward. And as we'll get into, that's what psychedelics do. They, they take you out of your ego, right? Because your ego, where's your ego? It's in your prefrontal cortex. It's in the front of the brain. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is get out of that. You need to, you need to be present. Be we'll one with in, everything. Yeah, be one we'll with get, nature, the universe, your people. We'll get into that. Yeah. And uh, so let me just continue here with uh, the, tra the train of thought I had with depression. So, you know, it's well known that there are some protective factors against depression. One being having friends, strong social connections, sense of community. Being married is actually a very strong link with, with uh, preventing against depression. Having a companion, lifelong companionship. Interestingly, religion, being part of a, a religious group has actually been shown yep. to prevent suicide and, de and depression. So that's interesting, interesting to note that. Mm -hmm. And... That, that takes me to now another proposed mechanism of why depression arises. So, so far we've, we've spoken about, could it be biological? Could it be an imbalance in the, in the chemistry of the brain? Could it be your genetics? Could it be the environment that we live in, the society, the way people view things? But there's actually another mechanism and it has to do with inflammation. So our good, good old friend inflammation makes an appearance once again. So... Many forms of major depression are related to excessive inflammation, okay? So it turns out that inflammation could actually be driving a lot of, of depression. And if you, if, you, if you look at the trajectory of mental health, okay, let's just look at the U.S. If you go decade by decade, it's pretty clear that depression is going up, all right? In the last 40 years, depression has skyrocketed. Anxiety has skyrocketed. And why? Is it only because of the serotonin, dopamine, neuropinephrine thing story? No, that can't be. There's no way that all these things are happening all of, us, all of a sudden. There has to be something else. It's society. It's, it's something that we're doing. Or could it be diet? Could it be our, our lack of exercise? Well, this is where inflammation comes into play. So that's another proposed model of, of what's causing depression. And 
I just want to go through a couple things here of ways that you can actually lower your inflammation. One is you have to increase your intake of essential fatty acids, specifically EPAs, which are a type of omega-3. So studies have shown that if you increase your EPA intake to one to two grams per day, it has been shown to be comp comparable to SSRIs. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to be linking the study that I'm referring to in the, in the description so you guys can read it for yourselves. But I thought this was very interesting. Now, there's many ways that you can suppl supplement with, for omega-3. You can supplement with fish oil, krill oil, through your diet. You know, salmon has a lot of omega-3, sardines, mackerel, cod liver oil. So please make sure that you're intaking your omega-3. Um, you can't go wrong. I mean, there really is no side effect of, of omega-3. Uh, unless you take excessive amounts, it could actually lead to bleeding. But again, you, you, you should consult with your physician regarding that. The other is exercise. And I know Sam will be talking a lot more about this, but I'm, I'm just going to mention here, exercise has been shown to definitely decrease and prevent depression over and over again. And we'll be linking studies to that. Creatine, which we classically associate with muscle building and going to the gym, that has been shown to prevent and treat depression. Anywhere from one to five grams a day has been shown to treat and, and, and prevent depression. The study will be linked below as well. Obviously, psilocybin, we'll be doing an entire section on that later on. And interestingly, ketogenic diets. There is some evidence that ketogenic diets can actually treat depression. And it has to do with the GABA system. GABA is uh, an inhibitory system in the brain where, where we, if we have a lot of ketones in the brain, it actually activates a system. It helps relax us. Uh, it decreases anxiety and, and, and depression. Joe, there's also links um, regarding the ketogenic diet and improving bipolar and schizophrenia, actually. New emerging research, bipolar yeah. disease and schizophrenia, very, very hard condition to treat. They are being treated by a ketogenic diet. And Joseph, just explain to the listeners out there, what exactly is a ketogenic diet? So a ketogenic diet is a diet where you're basically using ketones as your main source of energy. So normally we use glucose as energy. That's the primary molecule that we use for energy consumption in the human body. However, the body is also able to use ketones. Ketones are basically fatty acids, fat. So our bodies can actually function on ketones. And, and it's important to note that there are certain organs in the, in the body they require different amounts of energy. And it turns out that the brain is one of the most metabolically active organs in the human body, along with the muscle, muscle tissue, the, the heart and brain. But the brain actually requires about 20% of the energy intake, the daily energy intake. And so, you know, studies have shown that if you can convert your energy from glucose to ketones, your brain can actually switch to completely different biochemical pathways and it can use ketones as a source of energy. And ketogenic diets have also been shown to, to treat epilepsy, especially in children. So we're talking about bipolar, epilepsy, um, depression. So just something to look into. And um, so, yeah, those are just some of the things that I wanted to mention. Um, other proposed mechanisms for depression include a dysregulation in the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Now that's a word, word, word full of stuff, guys. I know, I realize it. So what is the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex? 
So our prefrontal cortex is right here, right? The front of the brain. This is the frontal cortex. This is the region of the brain that basically regulates executive function. And also it, 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 it's involved in who we are. So your sense of yourself, of who you are, your, your ego is what we call it, is here, is in the prefrontal cortex. So there's a region in, the, in, that, in that location that's called the left dorsolateral region. And it turns out that that's actually connected to the vagus nerve. Vagus nerve, one of the cranial nerves. And the vagus nerve is actually connected to the heart. So I stumbled upon a, a researcher out of Stanford and he's actually doing research in, in what's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And what this research has shown is that they've actually stimulated that part of the brain and actually treated patients with depression. And indirectly, they also lowered the heart rate because obviously the vagus nerve is involved with heart rate, heart rate, heart rate variability. And so anytime that you stimulate this pathway, this neural circuit, which is the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, vagus nerve, heart, actually reduces symptoms of, of anxiety and depression. So the point is, we have so many tools at our disposal at this point. Um, it, it doesn't just necessarily involve medications. You know, there are so many things that we have. Obviously, we're going to talk about psychedelics uh, as, as, the, as the episode progresses. Uh, we're going to also mention ketamine, which is another psychedelic. We're going to be mentioning CBT, mindfulness, meditation, all, the, all those things. Um, I just want to make a brief note of therapy, uh, the role that therapy plays in depression. Uh, obviously, you know, it's very beneficial. Um, people who are depressed, they, they tend to have a certain personality. They tend to blame themselves. They tend to be guilty. They tend to bring, this up, bring themselves down. And they always see the glass half empty instead of half full. So that makes you wonder, what, is it the way they're framing things? As Sam was mentioning, right? When you think about those people who are in, in concentration camps, right? Like, like Viktor Frankl, right? He was a survivor of the Holocaust. If you, if you guys ever have a chance to read his book, when he talks about his experiences in the camp, he says that there were two types of people in the, in the concentration camps. Either they accepted where they were and they saw that as an opportunity to succeed and to move forward. Or they just blamed themselves and they just caught, got caught up in, in themselves. In such a powerful point. Because whenever, you, you, whenever something seems to be bad, it's, all, it's how you frame it. Right? It's, how you, it's, it's how you view something that determines your experience and your perception and your reality. Right? You can literally do this for anything. Oh, my car broke down. Okay, it's the end of the world, the worst day of my life. Or you could have seen, you could see it a different way. What if I was driving and a car broke down? Very different. So it, it really is your perspective on things. Sam, did yeah. you want to say anything about this I before mean, I continue? I mean, there, there are things that are in our control and there are things that are out of our control. And the only thing that we can control is our emotions, how we react to things. If we're driving down the street and somebody cuts us off, we can't, we can't control that. That's a, it's, it's a, it's a, an, it's a variable that we cannot control. The only thing we can control is what happens after that. What happens after that person cuts me off? Am I going to scream? Am I going to flip them off? Am I going to start cursing? Am I going to get myself all angry? For what reason? What is that going to get you? It's not going to get you anything. In that moment, you have a choice. 
you can either just stop for a second, breathe and think, okay, that person cut me off, you know, and this is what I do now. Maybe they're late to work. Maybe, maybe there's a pregnant woman in the car and, and they're, they're going to the emergency room. You know, try to, try to look at the, the positive. You're only affecting yourself, you know, when, when you react this way. So I think, I think, yeah, the one thing we have control of is our emotions. Like, just like Victor Frankl said in his book, you know, when you're faced with these, uh, these, these really, really bad circumstances, you know, you, the only thing you can control is how you see it, your perspective and try to get to make the best of it. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, that's a very important point, which I, I'm sure, uh, Sam will be talking more about as we continue. So I think I, I really want to not change gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about the clinical presentation of, of depression and what we have currently for treatment of depression, which will be a very good segue into psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So, so again, this is more of a st statistical, uh, point, but millions of Americans are taking antidepressants and I can just say personally, in terms of my, my clinical practice, I want, I want to say anywhere from 30 to 50% of my patients are on SSRIs and or benzodiazepines. And again, this is just my experience and my thoughts, but I, I, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure if we're, that we're heading in the right direction because we're, we seem to be prescribing more and more of these medications yet the number of the, the, the number of depression in terms of numbers of people and also the severity seems to be getting worse. So there's kind of a disconnect there between you know, SSRIs and, and really what we're seeing clinically. And let me, let me, let me, let me tell you guys how you should, what you should suspect in terms of depression and how a physician or a clinician should think about it. So depression, it's not just that you had a bad day, right? It's not that, it's not just that you, you, you weren't able to, I don't know, close a deal on something. That's not depression. And, and I, I hear people colloquially, colloquially say, oh, I'm depressed. Oh, today was depressing or I feel, no, you're not depressed. Depression is a very, very, very specific diagnosis that requires uh, uh, someone with experience to make that diagnosis. I think what people are referring to is they're disappointed, they're frustrated, not, de not depressed. So we, we really need to be careful when we're using those words because there are people who are actually depressed. And as, as I'll tell you in just a second, it's very, very specific. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. So how do you, how do you diagnose depression? How do you know if you're depressed? Well, there's actually a very strict criteria, which clinicians use often. One is called the grid Hamilton criteria. The other is called a patient health questionnaire. And basically these are just a bunch of questions that you ask the patient and you ask them things such as, are you, are you sad? Are you having anhedonia? which is the inability to enjoy things or have flatness. Are you guilty? Do you have thoughts of harming yourself or others? Do you have negative self-talk or confabulation? And so those are some of the things that we, that we suspect. Um, it turns out that depression is actually not so much sadness, although you, uh, you can obviously see it, but it's actually characterized more by the inability to enjoy things. It's called anhedonia. So people who are truly depressed clinically, they actually cannot experience joy. They have a very flat affect, meaning 
you know, eating a, a, a meal has no effect on them. Uh, watching a movie has no effect on them. Traveling has no, like, they just, nothing makes them happy. Or n- nothing makes them, nothing gives them enjoyment and satisfaction, which, which if you remember, is one of the dom- domains of happiness. Anymore, and, right? Like, it doesn't give them yeah. happiness. Those same things Those same that things. they used to be happy about or yeah. do, th- there's been a big change is what you're saying. Yeah, there's been a big change. And that's what really okay. separates someone who is just, sad from depressed it's really that inability to enjoy things the other thing that's very important is that depressed patients they have a very characteristic physical exam and i know most people don't associate depression with with physical exam findings but actually there are some very specific physical exam findings that you see in depressed people one Mm -hmm. of them is a flat affect and just really just not moving much not talking Kind of just being there, like a veg, like a vegetative state. What we call it, what we call it, um, lack of appetite, not eating. That's a very, very big one. Sudden weight loss, sudden weight gain, um, not sleeping well. You know, these are all the, all the things to, to, to think about if to, if you're considering depression. Yeah. Also, just one thing as a physical therapist that I that I look out for to to potentially know if a patient is presenting with depression is how they walk. So when we analyze someone's gait, there's a link between lack of arm swing and, and mid-trunk mobility or thoracic mobility and depression. So people who have depression are more likely to walk without swinging their arms as much. It's very interesting. You ever see somebody walk with their head down and not really moving their arms, right? And compare that mm-hmm. to somebody at a park who's walking with dumbbells, pumping their arms like this, walking really yeah. fast. It's a big difference, right? Yeah. It's big, it, big it's, so, yeah, and we're gonna get into this. You know how the mind affects the body. You know the vagus nerve, how our muscles and everything are related to our body. How a physical therapist can help somebody with depression, and anxiety. So there, there, guys, there's definitely a huge link between the physical body and the mental body. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, and just to just to wrap up this section before Sam really delves into anxiety and and some of the techniques. I know I'm does, getting anxious to talk about it. <laughs> I just want to kind of say one thing. Um, Obviously, depression is a real thing. I'm not denying it. We're not denying it. It's an it's a actual disease that affects millions of people. But but what I have issues with is when, when first of all, clinicians, they don't make the proper diagnosis. So you really, you really have to be careful with, with diagnosing someone with depression because oftentimes it's not actually depression. It could, it could be grief. It could be general sadness. Maybe they don't, maybe they're just, maybe it's a hormonal problem. Maybe their cortisol is too, is too high. Maybe their thyroid is low. There's mimickers in medicine, things that can cause depression. Maybe there's something in your diet. So I, I think as a medical community, before we make a diagnosis of depression, we, we have to be careful that we're ruling out all of the other causes before we jump to depression. The reason I'm saying yeah. this is because we as a society, in terms of a medical society, we're over-prescribing SSRIs, okay? Again, I'm not saying that they don't work. They obviously work. Um, studies have shown that SSRIs, they definitely improve the symptoms of depression. But we're generally speaking, we are over-prescribing SSRIs. And the other issue I have is that not only are we prescribing them too often and we're not making the accurate diagnosis of depression, the scary part is that we're not really educating our patients correctly in terms of what are the side effects of these medications, mm-hmm. right? And this is where we're going to tie in psychedelics and compare psychedelics to SSRIs. 
because what really separates psychedelic research from SSRIs, SNRIs, MAO inhibitors, tricyclic antidepressants is that they don't have side effects and they don't, they don't cause addictive behaviors. And SSRIs, also known as serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the way they work is that they basically increase the serotonin at the level of the synapse. You may be asking, what is the synapse? The synapse is the connection between two neurons. Okay, so neurons, they talk, they communicate one another via electrical signals. And you can think of the neurotransmitters as the cars, the axons are the highways, okay? And so basically that's how Paxil works, so Zoloft, uh, all, those, all those SSRIs, that's how they work. They, they increase serotonin at the level of the synapse, but it turns out, as Sam was mentioning, it's not just that it increases their serotonin it actually makes serotonin a little bit more effective. That's really how it works, the efficacy. And we're just over-prescribing SSRIs. We're not really educating patients properly on the side effects. There are tons of side effects with SSRIs, ranging from libido, changes in libido, weight gain. Um, dry mouth. Know, dry mouth. Heartburn. Uh, heartburn. Nausea, headaches. Just, so many suicidal ideations. Yeah, especially yep. in, in, in younger individuals, there is an increased black box warning that it yes. does increase your risk for the suicide. Again, yes. with all this being said, we are not here. We are not telling you to stop your SSRIs. Please do not ever stop your SSRIs. Always consult with your physician before you do this because if you abruptly stop an SSRI, you can get what's called serotonin syndrome. Mm -hmm. So again, we're, we're giving you here our thoughts and our advice and the research that we come across, but please, anyone listening out there, never, ever, ever stop your SSRIs without consulting your physician. Yeah. Go ahead, Sam. And, one, and, and just a point about SSRIs, they take, I believe, two weeks on average to work. Is that right? Uh, at least yeah. two weeks. At, at least, least two weeks. So that's and, something and, that I, a lot of my patients have told me like, oh, it's not working. It's not working. And I actually have to educate them. Hey, you know, it may take a little while to work. Did your doctor explain this to you? Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh my God. I'm just like scratching my head. Like, are you kidding me? How can you give somebody this, this potent medication and then explain to them the side effects, how long it's going to take to work, what it does in your body. We're like pumping these pills out, like, like, like magic pills, like candy. Yep. It's very dangerous. Yeah. And I've seen it, Sam. I've seen, I've literally seen providers, licensed providers prescribe SSRIs like like candy. I mean, yeah. there's no discussion of alternative options. There's no discussion of therapy. There's no discussion of exercise, exercise right. supplements. Um, this is just none of that. It's just, it's just again, like I, like I mentioned in the salt episode, it's just reflex medicine. It's just, oh, you're depressed? Oh, here's an SSRI. Mm -hmm. And again, if that wasn't bad enough, not only are they just prescribing it, over-prescribing it, but they're not, they're not explaining the full side effect profile. They're not, they're not telling them exactly how this works. What is the mechanism behind this? And yeah, that is a good point. It takes about actually four to six weeks wow. for SSRIs to reach full effect. Wow. But as, 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 as we'll get into, most people who take SSRIs, about a third actually are SSRIs resistant. So they actually oh have no, they, there's no effect on them. So this is the reason why we, this is what really have really caused us to go down this rabbit hole of looking for alternative options. And this is how we came across psychedelics. 
And that's why there's a psychedelic renaissance, meaning an emergence of new research, which I think Johns Hopkins and actually started up again. Uh, they're, they're very big on, on psychedelic research. And this is why that's being done. Because like you mentioned, I do want to, I do want to just backtrack a little bit with the side effects of psychedelics. There are no major side effects. You know, they're safe. They are very safe to take and effective. And for a drug to be on the market, it just has to prove that it is, it is safe and effective. However, mm-hmm. when if you're going to do these drugs, it, it, the research shows it, it's very dependent on the setting, which, you know, we'll talk about later. Again, it has to be, in the, to be done in a controlled environment with a controlled dosage. And you have to have someone, you know, that you can trust in the room. And, you know, the things, the, the setting has to be very strategic. So, yeah, if, if those things are done, the side effects are zero to none with mostly the psilocybin and LSD. However, there are some psychedelic drugs like ketamine and, and, and others that may have some side effects and their research is still in the works. But in this episode, we're going to mainly focus on psilocybin, like I mentioned in the introduction, LSD. We're going to talk a little bit about ketamine. We're going to talk about MDMA and some implications with PTSD, anxiety, uh, but mostly we're going to focus on psychedelic research and the effects of on uh, major depression and anxiety. So uh, I just want to, yeah, I think I think with the SSRIs, um, adherence is a big thing, right? Adherence to these drugs, especially when the effect of these drugs takes so long, like you mentioned, perhaps four to six weeks. So not only does it take a long time to work, you just mentioned that people are resistant to this medication. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how effective are these medications, right? In comparison, like we'll discuss later on, psychedelics work right away. Yeah. They work right away. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's all, all very valid points. Um, SSRIs, they definitely do not work right away. There's a lag period, like I said, about two to six weeks. It depends on the patient. Some people respond faster. Some people respond slower. Um, a lot of people, they actually do benefit from SSRIs, but they actually have to come off of it because they, they don't tolerate it because of the side effects. And then they're yeah. left in the dark. And then, and then what do we Terrible. do? Right? Again, and, and I just want to make something clear, guys. Psychedelics are, are actually Schedule 1 drug. So what that means is that it's illegal. Right? We're not here, we're not here saying go, go to the street and do psychedelic. No, that's not what we're saying. We're, we're, what we're going to present to you guys today in this episode is are very, very specific and controlled experiments that were conducted in institutions around the world, including Johns Hopkins, um, Cambridge, England, and Stanford. All right. Mm-hmm. These, these, these experiments are done under very controlled circumstances. The patients are monitored by healthcare professionals. We're not talking about recreational psychedelics. We're not seeing any of that. And again, keep in mind that, that, that Psychedelics are still Schedule One, and none of them in have most countries. Been, yeah, in most countries, in most countries, and none, none of them have been actually approved by the FDA in the U.S. So yes. that's we just want to make sure you guys are aware of that. And we're gonna put a we're gonna put a photo here in the video showing the legality of psychedelics in various countries around the world. As you can see in the map here, it is uh, widely used and legal in various areas in South America, some places in Canada and Europe. Um, so yeah, before we move on to, you know, before we dive deep into psychedelics and the research and depression, I want to talk about anxiety because Dr. Joe, anxiety and depression go hand in hand, right? Yep. Most yep. people who have depression have anxiety and, you know, have, a, have combinations of both. Mm-hmm. So I know you guys are wondering, like, what does a physical therapist have to do with this topic, right? 
what is a physical therapist? How can a physical therapist actually help symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety? And uh, I actually did a presentation on this with some of my classmates in physical therapy school. And we presented on the benefits of psychedelics in regards to your overall health. And there are actually associations for physical therapy with psychedelics. I'll link them in the description. So we were taught, like when we get a patient in and we suspect that they may have depression or anxiety or some kind of mental health disorder, we were taught a very, very quick and effective screening tool. Um, it's basically two questions. And I'll pull it up now. Ba very, very basic questions that we can ask the patient. And one of them is, in the past month, have you lost interest or pleasure in things you usually like to do? And the second question is, have you felt sad, low, down, depressed, or hopeless? And these are two very, very basic questions that we can ask our patients to quickly screen for depression. And if they answer yes to one of these questions, then we can refer them to the appropriate provider, like a mental health counselor, practitioner, a therapist that can help them cope with what they're going through. So let's say, let's say we, I have a patient, right? And I look at their intake form and I'm seeing that they have chronic pain, right? They have fibromyalgia. They have, um, you know, they, they've had three surgeries and they're still coming in with pain and the pain is from head to toe. That's not normal. When our body has an injury and, uh, when our body has an injury, it takes a certain amount of time to heal. For example, Dr. Joe recently hurt his calf while we've been marathon training, right? He hurt his calf. He strained it. Typically it'll take a few weeks to fully heal. That's a normal response to healing. What happens in this country? And we have an epidemic, we have a chronic pain epidemic, which is leading to the opioid crisis. And people are being overprescribed opioids as the line of treatment instead of the therapy that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. So this, this opioid crisis is causing a huge, huge health crisis, both, both for patients, for, for companies, it's, it's a complete disaster. And what I've noticed is with, when people have chronic pain, that calf pain that Joseph feels, maybe it feels like a two out of 10 pain. Somebody with chronic pain in a revved up nervous system or a revved up sympathetic nervous system, a system that's stuck in this state of anxiety, state of tension in their muscles, that pain that Joseph feels a two out of 10, they're going to feel a 20 out of 10. And that's not normal. That tissue may have healed, but the brain has not healed yet. And that's where we enter the world of pain science and altered pain processing. People who have chronic pain, that chronic pain is linked to depression. So my, the patients that I see most of the time have both depression, anxiety, ringing in the ears, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, all of these collection of symptoms indicate to me, I am not going to do traditional therapy on you. That's not going to work. I'm going to go massage your calf and stretch your calf and strengthen it. It's not going to help you to decrease the expression of pain because guys, pain is very complex. Pain is a subjective experience of a sensation. And although pain is important for many things, like if we, if we're walking and we step on a nail, we need to know that that nail is there, even though it's important at times. Our body gets confused when we have chronic pain and it keeps sending these signals and signals and signals and it doesn't know when to stop.
So the treatment of AAT, which is the treatment that I do, is one way to make this loop stop. AAT stands for Associative Awareness Technique. And this technique is a six step process that is designed to essentially bring back homeostasis to your body. And the way that we do this is by breathing, right? A specific set of breathing techniques, a technique called reflex, where I'm basically, I take the patient into a room, a very relaxing room. The lights are off. I have white noise playing in the background. They start doing this specific breathing technique to calm down the muscles that are very, very tense in people who have anxiety. Guys, anxiety, as Joseph explained in a previous video, anxiety is related to the HPA axis. It's related to your kidneys, it's related to your heart, and it's related to your brain. And the HPA axis is a connection between multiple organs. And when we have anxiety or OCD, this loop keeps playing back. So instead of being scared or frightened for a moment in time, let's say we, we had a car accident, we get bumped, we have this fear response, which is normal. But what happens is that fear response gets stuck in us. And if we don't experience something called a freeze discharge, that trauma stays with us and our neck is going to stay tight. Not because the muscle itself is tight, it's because the connections between our brain, which is right here, if you guys are watching the YouTube podcast, this is our brain and this is our spinal cord, our body. The connections between the brain and the, and the, the neck muscles in that whiplash incident are constantly being sent. So what do we treat? The neck? Do we do massage and, and heat and, and, and massage to the neck? Or do we implement a technique to calm down the nervous system and to, for that patient to experience that freeze discharge? Because with any traumatic experience, if you guys look at the work by Dr. Skayer, who's a traumatologist and, and one of the, the, the people who influenced the creation of associative awareness technique alongside two physical therapists, if you look at, if you study traumatology, this loop is just constantly being sent to our muscles. So what I do is, like I said, white noise, relaxing. I teach them a breathing technique to calm down multiple muscles in their body at various points. And then I do something called reflex, which is simulation, safe, non-noxious stimulation to various areas of the body that are known to get tight with people who have depression, anxiety, fear response, OCD, chronic pain. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll test certain points of their muscles, like the jaw, their upper traps, their pecs, their lower back, their calf, muscles that are respons responsible for that startle reflex. When, 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 when you get hit in the back of your car, what do you do? You go like this, your, your neck goes up, you clench your jaw, right? You, 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 you're protecting your vital organs, your heart and your lungs. That's why we do this. We clench our fists. We, we, we fan out our toes in response to run away from that fear response or that, that, that fear stimuli. So our body gets stuck in this, in this state of tense tension. So guys, if you want to try it at home, if you're not driving and you're in a safe, comfortable position, I want everybody to extend their arms out to the sides with your palms up. I want you to curl your toes into the floor. I want you to tilt your head to the side and I want you to bite the tip of your tongue very gently. You're going to close your eyes. Imagine something peaceful, something that brings you peace, like a sunset or a, a happy memory. 
And I want you to take four deep breaths from your stomach. Let's try that. Again, and just biting the tip of your tongue, curling your toes, extending your arms with your palms up, gently tilting your head to the side, closing your eyes, and taking four deep breaths from your stomach. And last one. You just activated your parasympathetic nervous system, which is part of your rest and digest, which is so important with depression, anxiety, chronic pain. This is a treatment that I do. We also do tapping to help with, with uh, better healthy associations between things that bother you in daily life. Like I mentioned earlier, someone cuts you off. Tapping is a very, very effective tool you can use to create new positive ex experiences and sensations in your body. This all goes back to classical conditioning. You're basically retraining your brain, guys. Just like that. So I don't want to give you guys all the information with AAT, but that's kind of like a little bit of what I do and how I help people with anxiety. And I've had patients with OCD, anxiety, depression that I treated successfully alongside with a little bit of uh, a traditional physical therapy. So going back to anxiety, anxiety, like I said, guys, just to wrap it up here, anxiety is a psychological, physiological and behavioral state right? But it should not last more than the perceived threat. It should not last for a long time. And that's when it becomes generalized anxiety disorder. That's when it becomes clinical. And uh, this is, AAT is just one way that we can, we can help treat this and help your body experience that freeze discharge, right? So when we have trauma or fear, which is the basis of anxiety, okay? Fear is the basis of anxiety, right? Uncertainty, fear. But what happens is our bodies is just like in that constant state and it doesn't know that the fear is gone. We're just constantly expressing that because there are three things that we can do when we have a, a traumatic experience or a fearful experience. We can fight, we can flight, or we can freeze. Most people don't talk about their freeze response. And I'm going to link a video of a polar bear um, being tranquilized. And what happens is this polar bear Right before I got tranquilized, because this is seen amongst many mammals, if not all, right before I got tranquilized, it wanted to run away. It wanted to fl to flight. It wanted to run away from this from this gun, from the tranquilizer, but it didn't get to do that. It did not get to complete the act of running away, which is what it needed to not be stuck in this this fear response. What happened was after they tranquilized the the polar bear, as you see in this video here. The polar bear started to freeze discharge and started twitching unconsciously, almost like they're seizing. And guys, I've had patients on my table do this. I've had patients literally convulse like this and shake or twitch because they're getting that freeze discharge out of their body. And once you get that freeze discharge out of your body, you complete the act. For example, if you were at a party and you're with a group of friends and a fight breaks out, and your friends need your help, but you couldn't help them because of multiple reasons. You were scared or you, you froze. You didn't know what to do. You couldn't help them. You, you got stuck in a freeze discharge. You got stuck in a freeze response. And your body won't be feel safe. Your body won't feel 
Ah, oh, okay, I got it out. You won't get rid of that. Get rid of that learned helplessness, unless you do something like AAT, unless you do something like this kind of therapy, where you can release it. And once you release it, you can actually extinguish fear. And that's something that Doctor Scare talks about. Again, he's a traumatologist, medical doctor. The goal of 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 AAT. And the goal of this kind of treatment is to extinguish fear, extinguish the anxiety. It's not to treat it with SSRIs. It's not to, to manage it with, with other treatments. It's to completely extinguish it. And I think that's also what psychedelics do, which we're going to talk about now.
Thank you all and be well.